This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet, over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalglish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. There are these really cool moments where people will be vulnerable and really show up and share things that might not look so great. And today's episode has one of those moments of vulnerability. And I just know that so many of you need to hear this vulnerability. Before I go forward, I want to share some pretty exciting news for the podcast. We have officially reached 500,000 downloads. This is huge. When I started the podcast back in 2019, I was thrilled when I reached my first 10 downloads, when I reached my first 100 downloads. And now today, here we are, this beautiful community growing and sharing. And I want to say thank you for helping all of us get to this part. So if you haven't already, I want to hear from you. Click those stars below. Let me know what you think of the podcast. There's five stars. You can click how many you want. And also leave me a few words. Your reviews are what help other people find the podcast and for our community to continue to grow. Today, I'm sitting with Zach Watson, content creator with over 200,000 community members between TikTok and Instagram, sharing about his fails and success as a, his word, man-child, still working on becoming the man he wants to be. Zach is also an accountability coach helping couples implement the fair play method and holding them to having tough conversations. He's also a husband, father, author, TEDx speaker, real estate investor, rapper, and former math and special ed teacher. Let's go into today's episode. Zach, I'm so grateful that I get to sit with you today and we are going to be talking about a pretty big conversation because I know that you have 
really jumped out in terms of talking about the mental load. But before we get started, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests, and that is tell us three things about you, three things that make you who you are. So three things about me versus three things that make me who I am are a little bit different, but um, I think a huge one is, so I'm currently in sales. Uh, it's a remote work. Um, previously to this, I was a teacher for the past eight years and I was sort of part of the, what I've been hearing it called the great migration of like teachers. Um, so I was kind of part of that, recognizing the pains of COVID and I was on paternity leave for four months and um, realized I wanted to be home uh, much more. Um, so I changed careers and I think it's pretty rare that fathers change careers to, uh, accommodate their little ones. Um, so that's the first one. Um, second one. And I think this speaks to, uh, my commitment to completion over perfection is that I wrote a book, uh, back about nine years ago now. Wow. Um, called ideas over coffee, 104 ideas that sort of changed my life by age 26. And it is not perfect. It is self-published. I made a promise to myself to complete it by my birthday when I was 26. Uh, it took me about 125 days. And um, there's a chance there's still spelling errors in there. Um, but I was committed to finishing it over like having it be perfect and have it sit on a shelf and not somewhere where people can get it. Um, which was actually what brought me to content creation and how we found each other uh, on Instagram and TikTok. Um, and I think the third one I'll say, so I, I have a couple that I, I could say here, not just three. Um, but I proposed to my wife, Alyssa, uh, after about 90 days of us dating. Um, and I have mathematical reasoning why, uh, I, I think most people when they hear 90 days, wow, that was quick. Um, I have a mathematical reason why it wasn't that quick. Mathematical. I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't, I don't think it depends on the length of time that you're together. I think it's the deepening of your bond. And, you know, it's interesting when the first time I sat with Greg, my husband on our, our quote unquote first date, it wasn't the first time we had met, but it was our officially our first date. I had the thought, I think this is, I think he's going to be my husband. And as a psychologist, I don't, I don't kind of buy into that. Like, you know, the one is out there, but I definitely know that when we know, we know, and we took several turns along the way. Um, okay. So yes, our content creation is what is crossing our paths together. And I remember coming across, it was your video with Alyssa where you went on a date and you had the fair play deck with you and you were both distributing the load and Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're holding it up. Yeah. What, what a powerful piece. And I think, what so many people are struck by is how you are having these open conversations around the mental load. And truthfully, Zach, I think what's interesting is part of me wants to say, where were you back in 2015? <laughs> because for, for me, having my son then, that term wasn't even around. We weren't even talking about the mental load. And I remember feeling it as a mother, but not really understanding what it was. It was actually a client who came to my office one day. I think it was before my second was born. And she had mentioned the mental load and I went home and researched it and thought, okay, wow, this is, this is really important for us to be talking about. So it's not part of my original clinical training. It wasn't language or issues that we initially learned how to tackle. But I'm curious for you, how did you become aware of the mental load? What led you into understanding this and getting a hold on it? 
So I would say fair play plays a huge factor in it. Um, but I'll preface it a little bit more with, I think, um, it actually started definitely with my upbringing for my mom. She calls herself a humanist, but let's be real. She was a feminist. I remember, I remember her, I think this one moment is a pretty good encapsulation of like how she raised me is I forget what it was. We're, we're going out to dinner somewhere. We're going to hang out with some friends and she, and Alyssa was pregnant and my mom said, Oh, you're, you're going to be like pregnant with her. Right. And, and she didn't really have to say much more than that, which was pretty much asking like, are you going to be drinking? Like, cause you know, she can't drink. So are you going to be also not drinking? And my, my response was like, duh, like, of course I am. And I, I, I think she raised me that way. And I, I've actually caught a lot of heat from people that I know, uh, obviously on TikTok, on Instagram too. Um, just talking about, I would love to live in a world where it's the norm that, um, to be dads are sober along with their to be moms, uh, their partners. Um, and I, I say that cause I think if it were the norm, just that getting ready for kids, there's so much mental load looking back on it that Alyssa went through that I didn't go through, but I know that I got a little bit of a taste of it when I was having to, like, I think my colleagues invited me to go out for drinks. I was like, Oh, maybe I could have like O'Doul's or something. Cause that's not alcoholic. Like, and then I Googled it, like can pregnant women drink O'Doul's and apparently they can't. So even that little like Google search, like those, all those tiny little things, like, are you having your prenatal vitamins, um, having to deal with like extra acid reflux all I was trying honestly to a fault sometimes. Cause I know that she felt encroached on sometimes when I was like trying too much to, to experience her experience, which I think, uh, and a, a lot of pe- people have given me criticism that like it impedes on the pregnancy experience. But I think the only way in a lot of ways that I know how to empathize with people is try to physically get in their shoes as close as I can. Um, and I think by trying to do that, there's a lot of things that I discovered along the way, um, that I think a lot of people will don't discover and probably won't ever discover. Support for today's episode comes from loop earplugs. For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom, and instead, my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using loop engage to help dampen the sound around me. And these loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code LOOP. 
times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. Picture this, you're planning your summer getaway, what to eat, where to visit, what to do, and where to sleep. But what about the comfort of home while you're away? This is something I'm constantly considering because if I'm uncomfortable in my clothing, then I'm more irritated and then things overall just don't feel great. And this is where Cozy Earth comes in. Right now, you can get 35% off with code SHRINK at checkout. Cozy Earth isn't just about creating luxurious bedding and loungewear. It's about elevating and transforming your entire travel experience. Their bedding is so soft and buttery smooth, it beats any hotel sheets I've ever slept in. And Cozy Earth's bedding comes in these adorable totes, making it travel-friendly and hassle-free. These have been my go-to sheets for well over a year now, and they are a must no matter where you go. Plus, their loungewear is perfect for those long flights or car rides. Their temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew ensures that you stay cool and comfy on those long flights. I know not everybody is hitting the road or the skies this summer, and that's totally okay. You can also create your own sanctuary at home, and Cozy Earth has everything you need to make every moment feel more blissful. Trust me, once you experience the comfort and quality of Cozy Earth, you'll never want to go back. My pajamas, the kids keep asking why I'm still wearing them. Visit CozyEarth.com, use my code SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, at checkout to get 35% off. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So that was that was one of the huge things. And then I took four months of paternity leave. I, I took three and then I manifested the fourth one by getting appendicitis. Um, I had been telling people since the beginning, I was like, I'm going to take four months of, off paternity leave. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. But literally the day at the very last day where I had to text my work, like, okay, I'll be back on Monday. I got appendicitis. I was like, wow, that's <laughs> the universe hasn't strained ways. So I think my upbringing from my mom doing um, really intentional work, controversial as it may be um, to try to, experience some of the pregnancy experience uh and then going through paternity leave changing careers to accommodate and try to be way more flexible uh rather than being out of the house 50 hours a week um and then reading fair play and engaging with the card game and i'll tell you that is a very confronting book like i I think i'm probably on the more progressive side of things but like that was a tough book to hear like what, what part was tough about it for you? Like when, when you say that, what's the moment that you're thinking? Is it around when you did the cards? Is it around how Eve talks about some of the things? What? I think, and even still some days, like I still struggle with this. I think some of the toxic time messages, I think it's like chapter two or three and talking about some of the theories and conceptions that we have around time and money. And like, you know, we live in a capitalist world where time, money is pretty much always valued over time. Um, and I think trying to grapple with those ideas 
Uh, and I think consistently surrounding myself by the Tracy D's, by the Renee's, by the, that darn chats, like, I think by consistently consuming a lot of that content, I've been able to wrap my head around it slowly. I still have like moments of regression around like the toxic time message of like, you know, like if I were earning like $200,000 a year and Alyssa were a stay at home mom, I I know at some point we'll want to have a second child. Like, doesn't that change the value of our time after work? Like, shouldn't I be able to recharge so that I can keep making more so that, you know, maybe we're able to pay for better childcare or we're able to uh, pay for other things that we wouldn't be able to accomplish otherwise. So there are definitely moments where I regress, but I'm going to interrupt you right there because I think that is one of the biggest hiccups that I see coming from, let's say the breadwinner or the person who's out of the home working or the person who's earning more than the other person is that this idea that because I am making all of this money, then my time is more valuable. Mm. And, and it, it, it's tough, right? Because, and, and it's so hard as a clinician to not get in the, into that debate with some of my, my mostly male clients in that perspective. Um, and what's interesting though is in our relationship, our, our roles are actually reversed. I'm the one outside the home more and Greg is the one doing more. He does pickups and drop-offs and he's doing the lunches and I'm the one outside the home. But what's interesting is how I, how I view the time still of going home. So I, I really like that you added that there because I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we get stuck in this belief that I'm working all day and making and like how valuable that time is and yet your partner is still doing all of the things. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, one of the things that I think often helps me wrap my head around it. So a, a pretty, I'm, I'm going to pat myself on the back here a little bit is uh, this December, I think I got Alyssa one of the best Christmas gifts I've ever given her. Um, since I met her, she, or when, when I met her, she had a horse. I'm going to come back to this topic that there's a little bit of a, pretense to it. Um, so she had a horse, she sold it cause we wanted to upgrade apartments and like she had just gotten out of college and, um, and horseback riding was like a huge part of her life for the couple of years right before I met her. And she hasn't really spent any time around horses for those years. As I was reading fair play, as I ended up reading unicorn space as well, the follow-up book. Um, and we've been in, we're in like a multi-month conversation about, well, what is her unicorn space? Cause we recognize there's a lot of, um, that like identity getting like squished together with motherhood. Yeah. Um, and she recognized that horseback riding was a huge part of that. So I, we, as we just moved, um, there's a horse farm, like five, 10 minutes from here. And I bought, I prepaid 10 like horseback riding lessons for her. And I, more so than the payment of it, more so than the organizing of it. It was the giving of permission for her to go do something that she loves, enjoys, and is passionate about. And the moment where I remember the the first lesson that she went out and I was here with Beverly. Um, I mean, my huge passion is making content. I can do that pretty much anywhere. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have the same background behind me every single video. So I really make my hobby, my passion work with everything around me, but you can't really do that with horseback riding. No. And so I think it was the moment that I gave her permission for that. 
um, helped me see a lot more of the the need for equality of time spent doing other things. And I think when you can, I, I, I've started to think that unicorn space should be read first and then fair play because I, I think a I lot agree. of people really. Yeah, I do. Agree. Um, yes. <laughs> because I think so many people like you have to want that unicorn space for you to want to like implement fair play. Like you have to want to buy like something really big to want to go budget, but fair play is like, learning how to budget and then unicorn space is like giving yourself permission to go buy the big item. But like a lot of people don't budget for the sake of budgeting or, or dieting for the sake of dieting. They, they want a result. So it's almost like you got to look at the result first, which is unicorn space and then create the infrastructure to make that happen. Fair play. I think a lot of people and parents, I'm going to say parents, but also moms struggle to do that. Right. As you said, that, our identities really change overnight. And whether we are the ones at home or not, it is a societal expectation and pressure that you will be there and you give up the things that bring you joy. Or, I mean, I don't know in your situation, but in our situation, my unicorn space is often found in one or two hour time blocks where my husband's are more like five, six, seven hour time blocks. And so like those time also can feel really challenging because it's like it's that urge to find fairness of what that looks like and then the the importance of actually going and doing it no matter what it is and I, I'm I love that you 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 kind of you found that and do, do you think it was a push for Alyssa to go and do that or do you think it was oh, yeah. just yeah because like something she wouldn't have done herself yeah like I, I think it was the night before she like she was tearing up recognizing how both excited and confronted she was to like go do something for herself. It was like uncomfortable. I, mm. I mean, there have been plenty of times where, you know, Everly's been with me for hours for her to do other things, but they're, they're rarely ever for her, just her personal pleasure and enjoyment. Yeah. Um, I, I know this week's actually going to be really hard for her. She's going on her first ever um, airplane trip. She's going to Colorado. We're in Massachusetts. Um, she's going to be gone Thursday morning through Monday night and this will be the longest she's ever been over from Everly for it's a it's a personal development um like a retreat weekend um amazing and I'm so hard. I'm really excited for her and, and I know it's going to be really hard for us I, I know we're going through a lot of transformation in that area as well what, what do you say to the partners who say I don't understand the mental load and I remember actually having this conversation with Greg early on. He, I tried to explain it. I said, yeah, you know, we, it's the knowing to buy a birthday gift. He's like, yeah, well, okay. I can put it on the calendar and I can think of the birthday gift. I know, but it's not just about putting it on the calendar to buy the gift. It's that I hold in my mind also the, the size of the child or their preference or their doll like, or their, right. What, what do you say to people who don't understand it? Cause I'm curious your perspective. It's, uh, I mean, it's pretty rare that I actually get people saying, well, I don't get mental load. Um, it's more, it's my, most of my experience with answering that question is um, moms and wives saying, how do I put this video in front of my husband? But um, okay, answer that question for me. How do I put this in front of my husband? How do I get my husband to be more like Zach? What do I do? <laughs> so um, I, I think the best way to describe mental load is by really trying to put, let's say, you know, we'll, we'll speak to probably the majority here, 
um, take a guy and think about what is one of those things that he really doesn't want to do because it, it requires mental load, but he doesn't see it that way. Mm. So for example, let's say grocery shopping. Um, if they were to go out grocery shopping, tell them in advance, you're not allowed to text me any questions. You're actually not allowed to ask me any questions. You have to go through the refrigerator. In fact, probably set a timer to see how long it takes you to go through the refrigerator, write a list and think up to five, six, seven, eight days in advance to what are we going to run out by then that we should probably get like an extra thing of milk for. Um, I think you've already given enough hints there. <laughs> you've given too much, but yes. Yeah. Okay. I get the task. Keep going. <laughs> so yeah, I, th- I think rather than explaining it as like a concept, like it, you know, I, I taught math for eight years and I've realized that most of math is not very well taught by explaining a concept as a concept, but you got to walk them through a reason that they would need to use the concept. Mm. Um, and so you know, you know, walk the person through a moment where they would likely be experiencing mental load, but not, might not have the language for it. Which is that, that when you're in the grocery store and you know, you need to get ketchup, but is it French's yeah. or Heinz, right? Like which right. one does the family like, or right. yeah, that's a really good example of that. Yeah. And like, I think probably a lot of people also around like, um, their jobs. So if you think about what are those things where they're sick, maybe they manage a person or they have a colleague that constantly comes home. Hey, what's, uh, you know, what's the code for, you know, when I got assigned into the HR thing, what's our company code? Oh, you gotta ask me again. And and you just say the number. What? And they're saying themselves, why don't they just write it down on a sticky note and put it on their computer? Like, I guarantee there's got to be areas of their life, especially probably in their job um, where someone is putting mental load on them and they just don't have the language for it. Mm -hmm. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I think that's a really, a really good one. And it's something that Greg and I use a lot in our relationship as we talk about his work experiences and what it means to be a team. And when you're when you do a task, but you only kind of do the task and you don't fully complete it. And what, how does that feel for you when you then come into the team, right? And really reframing our relationships as our home relationship as the most important team that you're trying to run. And yet rarely do couples tell me they have team meetings, that they are having those weekly check-ins to talk about what's coming up this week. What's good. What's tough. How can I support you? Where do you need extra hands? Right? Like those are the things that we need to be focusing on and nurturing in our most important relationship, which is our, our home team. Yeah. And I loved how it was put uh, with you and Renee on one of those recent episodes where I think it was on Fridays, like they were, the two of them were collaborating saying, well, I want to mow the lawn. I want to get this done, but I want to take my walk and like making sure that you guys are aligned right before that weekend occurs so that, or so that people don't have to be shower ninjas like yourself. Yeah, exactly. Where I just sneak off and get the shower. Yeah. Because I wasn't like that. I remember at one point saying, why am I asking Greg to take care of the kids when I'm going to for a shower? I'm just going to go and take a shower 
I think, you know, something that strikes me with maybe what you and Alyssa are doing is really about having open conversations and a willingness mm-hmm. to be vulnerable together. And actually when, when you were talking earlier, I wrote down empathy that you, you know, you were doing some of this intentional work to try to understand what Alyssa was experiencing being pregnant and considering her. But a big piece there that I heard from you is that you're using empathy to try to understand what her experience is like. I, I try. I don't, I don't know how often I actually accomplish that, but I try. I, I know I said earlier, like sometimes it was to a fault. Like I remember when she's having acid reflux, I said, well, I guess I could take a shot of vinegar in the morning. That would give me a little bit of that experience. I, I tried carrying around a, um, a little fanny pack with like a five pound weight in it. Um, and every once in a while I would go to bed just to try to experience at least some of like the, like, the discomfort and being able to have my normal like sleep positions. Cause she is normally a stomach sleeper and that did not work being pregnant. Um, and so at one point she like, she went to like spoon me or something. She's like, do you still have that thing on? Take that off. <laughs> and she was like super annoyed by it. And I, and I get it. Um, so you, you were trying to live in her experience versus empathy means you can sit beside her and say, I could see how this would be really hard for you. Or yeah. I could see, and I think that's part of, and I'd love to hear more from you around how do you keep the dialogue open? How do you, and Zach, do you tend to be someone who's more defensive when it comes to talking about this stuff? Or do you tend to be kind of more of the like one upper Say more about the one-upper. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Yeah. So defensive is someone who's really trying to protect themselves where they're they're in that position of, yeah, but at least I prepared. I'm thinking of like you preparing the room. Well, at least I prepared the room and put the curtains down and got the lovey in the crib. Like that's defensive. The one-upper is more like the like, well, you didn't help me last time. Okay. Well, I had to do this all on my own last time. And probably more time you should do. When, uh, when I'm not at my, uh, my top game of like being empathetic, I'm probably more of the, uh, the defensive person. Um, but I, I think one of the things that we've probably done a pretty good job over the years is, uh, and I've recognized, so I know sometimes I kind of, I give myself a, almost a bad name in front of a lot of guys. Cause I know in a lot of ways I'm calling them out. Um, but one of the tools that I think I have, that's not by my decision um, that a lot of them don't necessarily have is I think Alyssa does a really fantastic job providing a really safe space for me to be a human to fail. And like, I think over the years we've gotten increasingly better, you know, we, some, some days or weeks or months, like it will regress, but keeping a safe space for me to, to share things they feel shameful about. Okay. Um, wait, 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 and, hang on. I'm going to interrupt yeah. you. I think this is really important. So I, I know most of my listeners are women. And then sometimes we get the podcast on in front of a man and it's fantastic. But what, what does she do? Like, so you're, yeah, you know, at the core of so many of the men that I work with is this deep rooted shame and to hide from that shame because that doesn't feel good. What commonly shows up is men getting defensive. And so then a partner comes and tries to talk about the mental load or their struggle and they get defensive because actually underneath that, there's a lot of shame or fears yep. of inadequacy or failure. So from your perspective, what do you see Alyssa doing that's helping you to have these dialogues and to be open and vulnerable? I'd like to share a story and I know 
I don't know um, how graphic I'm allowed to be on this. Um, so I, I shared. This, it. <laughs> okay. Um, so I shared this recently on uh, it was like the year of the men's summit with Elise Michaels. I don't know if you've heard of her before, but um, I did talk on. I feel so uncomfortable saying this word masturbation. Mm-hmm. And um, so this also speaks to one of the episodes you had recently talking about the pressure of intimacy at postpartum is in my experience, like really trying to be the best man that I can be for her during pregnancy. Um, you know, I, I recognize after the kid, like I was planning on being celibate for a bit. And so I was trying to emotionally like mentally prep myself and I fell into back into some bad habits around watching pornography, um, and getting into masturbation. And I'm going to, I'm going to make like a, a differentiation between self-pleasure and masturbation. I think masturbation is a, it's like a, it's what's the word I'm looking for compulsive behavior where I've found in the past that I do it often when I'm like procrastinating, when I am really searching for like a dopamine hit and, or like I could easily replace like binge eating like a bag of pretzels with, masturbation it's a release it's um it's it's a chemical in your brain that makes you feel good right so it is Mm -hmm. definitely like so if you're feeling anxious if you're avoiding something right procrastination if you're having hard feelings about something totally makes sense it's it's a release whether it's food masturbation gambling all of that Mm -hmm. don't worry i'm coming back to where we had started this so um so after about four months or so, we finally got Everly sleeping in her own crib. And it was like, whoa, we live in a new world now. And it was the first time I'd ever really considered inviting, asking Alyssa to be physically intimate with me. And, you know, I, I was scared to ask because I, I know just, you know, her body was ravaged by having human developed inside of it. Um, and so I really was scared of creating extra pressure. I know she was having a tough time breastfeeding. Um, I, I know she had a lot of challenges, especially I was actually losing weight while she was still struggling with the fact that she had gained weight. Um, like I didn't want to add one more pressure. And so one thing, so another podcast I would recommend if people want to hear more on this is um, I, I was on this, the desire on fire podcast uh, about a year, almost a year or a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. I forget. Um, but we talked about how one night I came to her and I, because I didn't want to put pressure on her, I asked, Hey, how would you feel about, cause I recognized that I wanted to be like intimate with her without, creating expectations or putting it on her. So I just asked like, how would you feel about me? Like self-pleasuring, like right next to you, like and me, like holding your hand and ab- absolutely every bone in my body was like, don't you dare say anything like this? Like I was terrified. Um, and coming back to like safe space creating, she, she immediately was really inviting me to share like, more about what it was that was on my mind about that. Mm. It wasn't just a yes or a no. It was like, mm, say more about that. Like, wh- where's this coming from? Um, and we got down, we probably talked for two hours that night and we, we discovered that 
um, you know, I, I had been going back and having some bad habits around masturbation and pornography. And, um, we recognized that I wanted intimacy. I wanted to feel close. And, you know, I, I recognized that maybe you can speak to us much better as a doctor, but I don't know what my needs are versus what my wants are. And I think the compulsive feeling of, of wanting to have that release, like feels like a need. And I know that there's probably a healthier way that I can be doing it. Um, so, you know, we really dug in to like, what are my needs? Like, what do I want? What do we want? And we were able to kind of come to the conclusion. We ended up creating some sort of guidelines around how to engage with that activity. Um, that activity said, meaning sex and intimacy, like sexual intimacy. Yeah, or yeah. self or like meeting needs. Do you mean? But or just like self pleasure. So like okay. it was you know if, instead of like if you know if morning wood came up and I was in the bathroom and she was still sleeping like don't don't just masturbate over the toilet like like choose really choose like is now a good time to like be relaxed and self pleasure and and take what my body's telling me and like finish the, the, the short journey. Um, or I notice how many metaphors I'm using. Cause I'm so uncomfortable talking about this topic. Um, and I know so many people are going to learn from this and your vulnerability is so powerful, Zach. So I really appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to hear that because I, I, I know this is, I remember when we had this conversation, I knew that probably a lot of people needed to hear it or talk about it more because I know how uncomfortable and how much shame was embedded in, in a lot of this activity for myself. Um, and I remember, it, you know, it came from an early age when you know, my, my parents had a pretty tough time talking about it with me. And I remember my, my mom caught me at one point and I think she, it was more that she saw the video that I was watching and she was like freaked out by that. And her reaction, I internalized the shame about what I was doing, not necessarily what I was watching. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of ways we, we probably have a good deal of that shame. So coming back to your question, how do, how do moms, how do women, how do partners um, create that safe space is when, when you can, you're not always going to tell if it's a vulnerable conversation that you're about to engage in, but if you can, like if you have the space to really try to not judge them on their response to things and the more practice they have at experiencing that you're not going to judge them. Like I was terrible. Cause I remember back in about a year after we met, she had like almost a panic attack hearing that I had been watching porn and a couple, like a decade later, we, well, not quite a decade later, but we realized it was cause she that panic attack came from her not feeling like she was enough for me yes. that I needed to go elsewhere. And so Which is the common message that women have that if my partner is watching porn, there's something defective about me and that for people listening, we need to separate those two things. They are not mm -hmm. the same. You are enough and men watch porn. There's just separate, right? Yeah. People watch I, porn, not just men, but people. Sure. And so I, I think the fact that she was able to totally channel, like I'm sure she had a huge internal response to that when I was sharing that with her. Um, and instead of being like, Oh my God, like, and like making it about herself, she chose to really allow me to the space to share 
well, why do you think you're doing that? Like what, what are those moments that cause you to do that? Like, is you like in just, you know, my sales training, <laughs> asking open-ended questions, um, and not making it about herself, uh, all the time we have these conversations and I, I easily would not be able to be the person I am today without her ability to keep that space open for me. Yeah. You're talking about that dynamic piece between the two of you, that that's something that she does that helps you to open up. And so many people, so many women say to me, my, my partner, my husband doesn't open up to me. They don't come to me. And when I see them as a couple, it often makes sense. Why? Because anytime he opens up to her and I'm talking specifically in a heterosexual relationship, but he opens up to her and then she says, something critical or dismissing or puts them down or right. And it's, it's that um, really quick response rather than what Alyssa did there was she tucked her response away and then focused on you and your vulnerability. And the more we do that with our partners, the more we get curious and hold that kindness and compassion for them having their own experience, the more that openness is going to happen, the more that vulnerability will show up there. I know so many people are going to relate to what you've just shared, Zach. So thank you so much for being vulnerable about this and sharing this very real story and the experience of how do we get back to being intimate afterwards? How do we deal with our own pleasure versus a release that maybe isn't working for us, right? Releasing through masturbation is one tool in our toolbox, just like maybe you decide to enjoy the box of cookies, right? But we don't, what becomes difficult for us from a mental health perspective is the rigidity and always going to the one tool, right? We want to have lots of tools in our toolboxes. So if you choose to release over the orgasm, that's one choice. Maybe you choose to go for a walk. Maybe you choose to get present in your environment. There's lots of those things in there. Zach, how did you start to then do this vulnerability stuff? stuff. Look at me labeling it as stuff, right? So, <laughs> you know, you, you create this content, you show up so vulnerable and authentic. And I know the, like whew, the internet world is so hard in the sense of the comments. And before we jumped on today, that's something I'd said to you is vulnerability is really hard for me in this space. So how are you doing that? I think the first, so I started creating content on YouTube back in 2016. I just finished my book, recognized I needed some kind of marketing for it because it wasn't going to sell itself. Or I guess I could talk about it with my five friends and call it a day there. Um, but I started making YouTube videos and honestly it was, it was all the advice I wanted to share with my students that like the, the school systems like stop teaching about life skills, go back to math. Um, and so I started making YouTube videos, honestly, just sharing the chapters. They're really short chapters. And, um, as the months went on, you know, I got into like, this is 2016. So like there, there, the smoothie challenges were all the rage and all those stupid challenges that they did. And, um, I started creating permission slips that my kids can, my students can sign to be on the, the channel with me. Um, and I started using it as rewards in the classroom at some point. Um, in my master class, I, I got my, um, my master's degree in teaching and I took a class on like how to be inclusive, um, which I think was really valuable. I, I talked to a couple of my, um, LGBTQIA friends and they said, yeah, have, have a pride flag in the classroom is like the simplest, easiest way 
to share that. And and I had a like a giant five by three pride flag in my classroom. And I put that on the wall, um, I think the third day in school. And no one really talked about it until I think a couple weeks in when the, when the kids test the water, I was like, Hey, nice flag. Why, why is it here? Um, and I, I just talked a little bit about inclusion, but some months down the road, one of my, one of my students wrote me a letter saying, thank you so much for putting it in here. Like I can't come up to my parents because they'll kick me out of the house. And like, I feel safe here. Um, and so I made, I made a video talking about that one cause I had been in the habit of making things. Um, one of the kids had actually asked me to make a video about it. Like, so, and then I could just put a QR code underneath and I could, I would never have to like answer that question again. Um, not that it was a waste of class time, but some people were like, Oh, we have to hear this speech again. So, um, I remember making that video and after like a, this is still my biggest video at the time was like a couple hundred views on YouTube. And, um, after like two weeks, it was at 5,000, which was pretty crazy at the time. And then like a month later, pride month hit and it hit like a hundred thousand, um, which was really my, I would argue my, one of my first viral videos. And it was weird cause a, a huge part of it was cause a, I think it got picked up by some website. It got like linked to, and a lot of like anti people started saying some really hateful things. Yeah. Um, and I think the really interesting thing that happened in that was I saw how much value was actually being gained and how many messages I was getting from people, like from students saying, Hey, how do I get my teacher to put this up in their classroom? Um, Hey, I showed this to my teacher and now there's a pride flag in our classroom. So I know somewhere out there, there's at least 20 or 30 classrooms in America that have a pride flag to that video. Um, and despite it was really tough receiving those comments today, I still get comments saying I'm a groomer. Um, and you know what? I've just embraced the fact that the internet is going to breed that behavior. Mm. Um, and it makes me tougher as a person to recognize what, if I'm going through that toughness as a straight white cockade, like I'm, yeah. I'm all the opposite of oppressed, like all, all the different categories. If I'm struggling with that, then like, I can't imagine what it's actually like for people that are in that mm-hmm. community. Um, so I think that was one of my first experiences with, you know, I was uncomfortable making that video, but I saw how much good it was doing in the world. And I was willing to, take some heat so that more people could hear about it. Um, so that was the beginning of it. And then 2021, I, I looked back on 2020. I was like, damn, I just missed out on TikTok already. Like the, the train has passed. And so I, I said, okay, no, 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 it hasn't passed. We're just gonna make one video every day. And, um, I just forced myself to make a video every day. Um, once our baby was born, then, um, I made, I made one video about the sixth S cause we have the, the five S's. I was like, y'all want to talk about the six S, which is mom's smell. Um, and I had like a, a shirt tucked over my shoulder <laughs> and, and that, that, hit, that was my first video over like 500,000 views. Um, and then like a week later, I must've just had a bunch of the right people on my page. Um, at a, pretty vulnerable video. And, you know, looking back, it was, I feel like it was a bit, um, 
exploitive uh, of our daughter. Um, so it's a, it's a video of um, me and her. Um, she's crying. Um, she's over my shoulder. I'm patting her on the back. Um, it's just a pretty, I'm not talking at all. And I just put captions over it, telling a 60 second story of how um, it's not hard for me to hear her cry. Uh, it's hard for me knowing that Alyssa wants to breastfeed. And I, and now that if I'm unsuccessful in calming her down the next couple minutes, I have to go wake her up after she's gotten not even a 90 minute nap in. Um, this was like the first couple weeks of, of parenthood it was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that one's sitting at like 5 million views right now. And so I, I think similarly, like one, uh, I mean, certainly my ego loves it. Um, all I egos think, do let's just embrace it that that's the system that it's created in. And if we deny it, then we're doing more damage. So we'll just acknowledge mm-hmm. it. That's fine. Um, so I think, it also, I don't know how much benefit that created out in the world. I think it's hard to measure because so many of the comments were feed that baby that a lot of people just misinterpreted the captions. I said I was on my 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift and people thought I wasn't feeding our like <laughs> two, two month old for eight hours straight. Oh they didn't my goodness. Understand the, that. the worst views, right? The worst views. Yeah. Well, why well, I, I came up with this phrase, I called it a Karen catcher, which was that they misinterpret the first 10 seconds and don't keep reading. And then they comment for the, during the part that would explain why they're upset, right. um, which was, I, I talked about the eight hour session. They go to comment and then they miss the part where I say, I have to wake us up every 90 minutes to pump and feed a bottle so that she can go back to sleep. Um, and at the end I was just saying, thank you mom so much for the sacrifice that you put in. Um, I know that I'll never experience it fully. Um, and I'm doing my best to try to honor that sacrifice by, um, by trying to do my best here as well. Um, What would you say to people who struggle to share their truths in the way that you have? I know you do some of this kind of con- content creation support and yeah, I think it's a, it's a little corny when people say this, but I, I, I kind of love when, when someone's like, yeah, like if I can make a video and even if it gets a million views, if it can just change one life, like it's a little corny when people say that, but it is kind of real. I it's say like, it, I say it's like, I, know. Like, I, I tell, I tell myself that all the time on the edge of like that vulnerability of like, okay, yeah. if this just reaches one person, if just one person has this new yeah. idea or this validation or this understanding, it matters. It's just one yeah. more person outside of you. Yeah. And I think that so many people like write themselves off as not interesting or they don't have anything interesting to share or like they're not good looking enough for the camera or, mm-hmm. you know, we have, pl- I, I purposefully, like I screw up my hair all the time. Like I look ridiculous. Um, and I've just recognized like there is so much good that has come from a lot of the things that I've shared. Um, especially when I'm sharing how I'm fucking up. Um, I think when we can, take life a little bit less seriously and share how we're screwing up. Um, I, I, I just think it makes social media a better place. I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, like as we've talked about, like the breeding ground of just negative behavior, um, social media can be just a really terrible place, but I think the more vulnerable we can get, um, and share it and almost similar to like the concept of the be real app, I think we'll make it a better place. 
Yeah. Um, so I think that's like a, a sort of a background um, passion of mine is trying to make social media the possibility of what it could be, which I think it was, there was a part of that that is what it was built. I think that might've been one of like its originating goals was to share more. I think Facebook like wanted to do that, but their execution has not been great, but there's, it's hard to incentivize people sharing bad pictures of themselves when you make all these filters and all these things like, Oh, of course, of course. I, I like one thing that always sits in my mind. I don't know if you've seen that, that documentary I think It's called, um, the social dilemma. And it shows this girl, um, just taking a simple picture of herself, putting on like Snapchat or Instagram gets, gets two likes. And then she takes it down, puts on, um, puts on like a makeup filter or something where it like makes her eyes a little bigger and nose a little different. And then she gets like a hundred likes and that, that kills me. And I remember reading an article like a year and a half ago that Facebook has a really hard time catching up with TikTok because, a lot of people on TikTok have come to see the content out there as being a lot more authentic. Um, back when I was making tons of YouTube videos, I was like, man, I'm not going to do very well on YouTube because I'm not good at being polished. My lighting sucks. Like all my ideas are off the cuff. And then TikTok came to exist and I realized that people were doing what I had wanted to be doing. I was like, wow, this yeah. is kind of perfect. And then Instagram has, has I think, become more of that to answer your question, I, I hope it's to make the world a little bit better of a place. Um, if we can share vulnerability and, and be more human out here rather than just the polished version of ourselves, I, um, I think we'll breed a lot of good things. Zach, I'm so appreciative of you sitting with me today and sharing you, your vulnerability, the stories around the mental load and how you and Alyssa are just doing a lot of hard work around this and sharing it so that other people can do differently, break cycles, break generational patterns. Where can people find more about you? Um, so I would say I'm spending quite a bit more time on Instagram these days. Instagram has been really nice to me. I haven't made a video for the past two weeks, but I've gained another 10,000 followers. Um, so I would say I'm, I'm a little slow on catching up. I'm about 90 DMs behind, but um, if you want to send me a DM uh, at some point in the somewhat near future, I'll, I will respond to it. Um, I'd say it's the number one place. Number two is TikTok. Um, not very good at responding to those DMs. Uh, if you want to see some so some other um, items that didn't make the list for interesting things about me is uh, as a teacher, I made some really cringy, silly rap music videos on YouTube. <laughs> Um, so if people want to see me rapping about Pythagorean theorem, um, global warming, uh, vulnerability in Brene Brown, um, you can find that on YouTube. Um, yeah, some ridiculous things I've put up on there. Um, (laughs) I will put the links in the show notes so people can easily find you. You just need to click on the show notes and take a look there. Zach, thank you. The last item I'll add is, uh, you know, if people are looking to be content creators and they're struggling with that vulnerability piece, um, I do similar to what I, I think this was before we actually recorded the podcast. I have an accountability group where we include money in the accountability of it. So, uh, that was actually the reason I've had a major growth the past couple months was me and my friend Frank started this group, um, we were posting three times a day on TikTok. If you didn't 
by the end of the week, if you hadn't put up 21 posts, you owed $10 per post to the other person. Um, and so by putting our wallets on the line has been a major, um, kick in the butt to get going. Um, and it's like a sort of create like a security deposit up front. Um, and there's money on the line for it. Um, and it can be really great in getting yourself going. Uh, I think people are a little afraid, but if, if you want the kick in the pants, that could be it. I'm happy to talk about it in the DMs with you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for joining me here. Thank you. One of the things that I have learned about shame is that when we open up and tell our story, it is a new possibility, another possibility to let go of that difficult emotion. When we become vulnerable, when we tell our stories, it removes shame. So that every time we go and do this, the hard thing, right? Every time we go and share that hard story, each time we're chipping away that shame. And that is why I believe it is so powerful to share our stories. It's part of the underpinnings of my book that's coming out this fall called I Didn't Sign Up For This, where not only will I walk you through four couples that I have worked with, but my own marriage is in this book. I think telling our stories can be incredibly powerful and healing, not just for ourselves, but for other people who are sitting in the dark, feeling all of that shame, wondering if it's just them, so that they can hear that no, it is not them. If anything resonated from today's episode, I would love for you to share it with others. And once again, I'm so glad that you are here with me. I will see you next week. Remember, the information shared today is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for the care from a licensed mental health care practitioner. Hey, I'm Charlene Joint, and you may remember me from season 18 of The Bachelor, and this is my husband, Andy. Hello. Together, we host Dear Shandy, a relationship podcast where we answer all your burning relationship questions and satisfy your guilty pleasure, aka bachelor needs. Not only do we provide the best bachelor recaps in all the land. So we're told. But we even bring on your favorite couples from Bachelor Nation for live double dates. Subscribe to Dear Shandy. We guarantee belly laughs, razor sharp advice, and to never take ourselves too seriously. 